This is Tech Refactored. I'm your host, Gus Hurwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center at the University of Nebraska. Today, we're joined by Cody Stoley. Cody is a research professor in the Department of Mechanical and Materials Engineering at the University of Nebraska. He is also a researcher with the Midwest Roadside Safety Facility, which is part of the Mid-America Transportation Center. He studies, among other things, vehicle impacts, crashworthiness, and occupant safety. Cody, thank you for joining us on Tech Refactored. I'm glad to be here today. Can we just start, Cody, with a bit about um, your work and the research that you do? Certainly. My work with the Midwest Roadside Safety Facility mainly consists of aiding and abetting ways for occupants to survive roadside safety crashes. So a roadside crash occurs when a vehicle departs the lanes and enters whatever is on the side of the road, whether that be a shoulder or a slope or a ditch, or if they hit a barrier or a sign support, anything that you might find that's adjacent to the travel lanes is the kind of features that we're going to be evaluating through full-scale crash testing, computer simulation, and straight design. So let, let's uh, start with a bit of the, uh, the history and evolution of this area. Obviously, really important work, but I, I want to just cue up for listeners that we, we will get to some of the actual physical testing of collisions that you do, which in really simple terms is the most exciting part, but really the work is much more important than just smashing big vehicles into uh, things on the side of the road. So can you tell us a bit about uh, the, the history and how uh, this uh, field has changed over the years? Certainly. It was back in the early days of the automobiles in the 1940s and 50s, we started to see roadside crashes resulting in fatalities, and early automotive companies like General Motors took the lead on finding solutions that would protect occupants of vehicles against these specific types of crashes. In particular, General Motors developed a handful of barriers which are the predecessors to a lot of our existing barriers today. Cable barriers, W-beams, concrete barriers, a lot of these shapes owed straight out of that work that General Motors supported. And over time, what we have observed is that roadside safety itself and roadside crashes continue to be a problematic element, both in the United States and in the world at large. Approximately a million people died worldwide every year from crashes for vehicles leaving the roadway specifically, and a lot of those are single vehicle crashes, as in they're not being forced off of the road by another vehicle also involved in the crash. Roadside safety is greatly evolved with the U.S. as the leader therein, and I'm glad that the Midwest Roadside Safety Facility has been able to participate in that global elevation um, and increase in the road safety that we've been able to achieve through improved barrier design, better understanding of vehicles, computer simulation models and interactions, material studies, optimized configurations, and better guidelines for states, including nation states, for how to better resolve their roadside issues. So there's an initial thing that I just have to note that I think is so fascinating and important about the entire concept of collision safety. Um, we are assuming that accidents will happen, that people will run off the road. And I, I, I'm a lawyer. I come from the legal perspective. And so much of what we try and do in the law is prevent accidents from happening and say, are we, this is the outcome we want, no accidents. But we know that accidents are going to happen. So the, the focus for uh, your work in many ways is minimizing the harms, minimizing the impacts when things fail, when things go wrong. 
That's correct. And that's a great way of putting it is consequence mitigation is the number one approach. Now, it's part of a broader scheme of preventing a crash in the first place. And there's many different factors that can assist in that. And what we see in terms of enforcement and in terms of preventing incapacitated drivers from taking the wheel and engaging in unsafe safety or unsafe driving maneuvers that would could potentially result in crashes, but there's a different side of it that has nothing to do with the driver, him or herself. Or it could be that another vehicle is encroached into the lane, forcing the lead vehicle off of the road. Sometimes there are avoidance maneuvers for animals that are in the road or pedestrians. Uh, there are times where mechanical failures of the vehicle itself cause the vehicle to veer off of the side of the road. And weather is one of the biggest contributors. Approximately 40% of all runoff road crashes have a contribution that's just simply vehicle to road loss of interface due to weather conditions. So you, you've used the term a couple of times, barriers or similar uh, sorts of terms. When I think of barriers, I, I think in very simple terms, I, I don't know if this is actually the universal name. This could be a reflection of my having grown up on the East Coast, but I think of uh, what I call Jersey walls, just concrete barriers. Um, but barriers are much more sophisticated than concrete slabs that I guess the, the goal of a Jersey barrier is to prevent you from leaving the road, hopefully. What but what's the role of and what's the technology behind modern barriers and how we think about them? That's a great question. Barriers are classified into three really broad categories. The first one of which is rigid, like you denoted. And a New Jersey safety shape is one of those shapes that are used. It's been uh, led away from in recent years just due to the propensity to cause some vehicles to have an increased risk of rollover on impact. And so they're being gradually replaced by single slope or vertical walls, but they have a very similar function. It's to contain any vehicle that hits it and prevent it from going into whatever's behind it. But then this next category is called a semi-rigid barrier, a little bit of a misnomer. It allows the barrier itself to flex in front of the vehicle, capturing a lot of that impact energy and decreasing the of energy from that impact that goes into the vehicle and into therefore the occupant. And then the last class of barriers is called flexible. Uh, and these were what you typically would associate with cable or really weak post systems that have really large deflections. We're talking about entire vehicle lengths of deflection into the system before the vehicle is captured. Generally speaking, the more flexible it is, the less expensive it is. And therefore, it's economical for states to install the cheapest barrier that will still accomplish the job that it is intended to perform. Uh, but at times you need higher capacity or you have less space, and so you don't have any option but to go with a more expensive, higher containment barrier. So what is the uh, job that these barriers are intended to perform? In general, it is always identifying a hazard that is located behind the barrier that you don't want the vehicle to engage with. And a hazard is a very broad classification of fixed objects, or it could be rivers or ditches, it could mean slopes. Um, you can consider a hazard, for example, an overpass. You don't want a vehicle flying off of the overpass and onto the roads below it, and so you need to contain that vehicle and keep it on that overpass. So a hazard is anything that is potentially behind the barrier, that if your vehicle interacted with it, it could create serious risk of harm. And you, you also focus on crashworthiness and occupant safety. What, what's the role? How can we use barriers? Or how do you think about occupant safety? And how can we use barriers and design roadways in order to better protect vehicle occupants when, they, when collisions do occur? 
There's a lot of effort with the collaboration of the vehicle structures and the barrier structures as well. We have made extensive use of the federal motor vehicle safety standards that define the bumper height for vehicles, and that's where we tend to place a lot of our safety features. We also work with the, how the vehicle reacts with its suspension to capture vehicles over the right range of heights, and that's the way we design our features to capture them. Likewise, a lot of vehicles will have sill heights whether the occupant's head is located above that sill. We try to prevent any location or feature of the barrier from being within the range of the sill height to prevent any feature from impacting the window or the occupant themselves who sometimes extend outside of the vehicle from coming into contact with that barrier feature. So there's a lot of synthesis and amalgamation of how does the vehicle geometry and the vehicle's attitude, how does it interact with the barrier's geometry and the barrier's configuration as well. It's common perception or knowledge that vehicles have gotten a lot larger over time. How does this make the, the job that you're trying to do, I'll say, more interesting? I don't know if it makes it more, more difficult necessarily. Vehicle size has a lot to do with the vehicle weight, and the weight and the mass are the biggest contributors to how energy itself is increasing besides just the speed at which the impact occurs. So as vehicles get bigger, as they get taller, they become more unstable. As they get heavier, they load the barriers much more uh, firmly and create scenarios in which the barrier itself can fail or rupture or prevent that vehicle from being engaged. When we saw a surge from predominantly sedans and small cars in the 70s, 80s, and 90s to predominantly SUVs and compact or crossover utility vehicles and pickup trucks right now, where as much as 70% of new vehicle sales from 2019 to 2021 were SUVs or light trucks. Um, that kind of changes the game because it means that the geometry of these fixed roadside barrier systems uh, really becomes critical. Can we still capture these elevated height vehicles? And so as vehicles get larger, it creates a challenge for the existing infrastructure as well as the design of new infrastructure to accommodate them. So that goes back to the uh, idea that you mentioned before with the, the Jersey barriers. When you have the higher center of gravity, these barriers that I, I don't know, they're probably about three foot tall. If the uh, center of gravity goes from about two feet off the ground to three feet or higher off the ground, when the vehicle hits that, it's more likely to topple the barrier or just to get uh, pinwheeled over the barrier. That is correct. And you don't want a scenario in which you're launching vehicles off of the top of a barrier, because in that case, that means that the barrier you designed and put in there didn't accomplish the objective. Yep. In fact, it did the exact opposite in many ways. You mentioned uh, uh, at the beginning of the discussion that uh, you use a, a range of tools for designing and evaluating these design elements uh, from computer simulation and also physical crash tests. Can you tell us a bit about the various tools that you use? Certainly, computer simulation is one of our most important tools that we currently use. It allows us to investigate a large number of scenarios, such as vehicle differences in speed, differences in angle, different types of vehicles, different locations of impact, wherein we can study the behavior of these systems and how the vehicle is engaging with them to ensure that no matter where the vehicle hits and how the vehicle hits that feature, the occupants inside of that vehicle are still going to be protected and safe. It also allows us to do a lot of optimization and updates on the designs themselves. But the reason we have crash testing is numerical simulation modeling isn't perfect. There's no way we can make sure that every single possible scenario plays out exactly the way that our computer simulation says that it should. 
And that is why it's very important for us to proceed with full-scale crash testing to verify that the designs that we've created through analytical calculations, through computer simulation, through CAD and modeling, still play out the same way in real life as we see them play out according to the principles of engineering design. And uh, I, w one of the reasons, I'll just be frank, two, two of the reasons I really uh, uh, like uh, you, Cody, and talking to you. First, uh, you, you've been one of the uh, first people to reach out to us from the engineering side at the university because policy and law is so important to your work. And we'll come back to that topic after the break. But also, you uh, invited some of us to come out and observe, I think, back in December, a, uh, a crash test that you were doing. C can you tell us a little bit about that test and the, all the preparation and work that goes into really these? You, you have to do it once. You have to do it the right, right the first time because you're literally destroying the environment that you're testing. Can you tell us a bit about what goes into that? Certainly. The project that you're referring to there was a multi-year project trying to identify the lowest height of a concrete barrier that would still contain and redirect one of the most difficult classes of vehicles that we have to try to gather, and that is the truck plus tank trailer combination vehicle, fully loaded at a national federal standard weight. This vehicle we impacted eight 80 kilometers per hour or 50 miles per hour and 15 degrees to the barrier surface. That's accordance with our federal criteria. And we had to ask a lot of questions ahead of time. How strong should the barrier be? What should the connections between that barrier and the subgrade be? What kind of a foundation does it need? Enhanced continuity. The barriers themselves will expand and contract because of thermal behaviors. How do we accommodate the movement and transition of the barrier under thermal loads? And what is the minimum height we can still have that will contain that vehicle to prevent it from rolling over the top of that barrier system? So this project started with initially an investigation of vehicle design and vehicle loads, moved into simulation of the tractor and the trailer itself to make sure their behaviors were realistic, investigating the impact loads, calibrating against existing data, and then constructing the system and performing the test. We are talking with Cody Stolle here at the University of Nebraska from the Mechanical and Materials Engineering Department from the College of Engineering and also the Midwest Roadside Safety Facility. We will take a brief break and when we come back we are going to turn to the intersection of these really challenging uh, real-world physical systems that Cody uh, helps to study and design and the role that law and policy plays in how they need to be designed. See you in a few moments. Hi, listeners. Thank you for tuning in. Interested in keeping up with the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center? Follow us at UNL underscore NGTC on Twitter, where we share the latest news and opportunities for faculty, students, and researchers. You can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter at NGTC unl.edu slash mailing dash list. And now back to this episode of Tech Refactored. And we are back talking with Cody Stoley about roadside safety. And uh, Cody, I, I want to turn now to some of the research that you've been doing recently on connected and automated vehicles 
and the the challenges that these pose from both a uh, engineering perspective, but also a uh, law and policy perspective. Can, can you uh, just start by telling us what we're talking about when we're talking about connected and automated vehicles? Are, are these Teslas or is, is this something else? Connected and automated vehicles do refer to two different classes of vehicles, which are often very overlapping. The connected side of it means that the vehicle has an engagement with either other vehicles around it or the infrastructure on which the vehicle is using. So it could be roadside units that are talking with the vehicle and saying, here's where your position is, here's where you're currently traveling in space, or here's the road geometry. Uh, It can also mean connection between consecutive vehicles that say, I'm traveling at this speed, okay, I'm about to hit the brakes, or I'm changing lanes, and it allows these vehicles to talk to each other. The secondary side of it is vehicle automation, which is the ability for the vehicle to make decisions independent of the driver's input. We have some lower level automation approaches such as adaptive cruise control. All it's the functions are working is detecting how far is the vehicle ahead from the vehicle that you're in and making changes to speed or adjusting the brakes in order to prevent or at least mitigate a potential crash if the vehicle up ahead of you abruptly starts to brake. You have other types of technologies like uh, blind spot warning and lane keeping assist, which are trying to detect if there's other vehicles that you can't see, as well as trying to minimally steer you to keep you inside of the bounds of a lane if it can see those lanes. The future, the horizon of these two vehicles is a fully automated vehicle fleet. At least that's the aspiration. Right now there's many implementation hurdles to get there. Um, But at the moment the connected and automated parts are merging and synthesizing together in order to form uh, a unified approach for vehicles that can both talk to each other and to the infrastructure and observe the infrastructure to complete guidance without the driver's input. So we'll we'll turn in a moment to the the policy side of this discussion, but just from a purely engineering perspective, what are some of the the safety challenges that these vehicles uh, present? Many of the safety challenges have to do with what is a literal multi-scale time problem. Decisions made by drivers can be made in tenths of a second, whereas the sample rate for data can be anywhere between thousands of hertz or single hertz. But you have real position and interaction problems between these vehicles. The faster you run rate sensors, the higher your computational needs. There are computational breakdowns, which means you need redundant systems. If you just use LiDAR, to detect vehicle proximity. And if you have something where LIDAR is either scattered or it's in a high cross RF environment, you may miss entirely that something is in in front of you. We've seen instances in which vehicles that are equipped with lane crossing and other smart and connected technologies don't see vehicles at perpendicular intersections that suddenly pull out in front until it's too late. Or in one case, NTSB investigated a crash in which a vehicle didn't observe the broadside of a tractor, a trailer combination vehicle, as it was making a turn, and the vehicle proceeded right underneath it as though it wasn't even there, uh, because nothing was located in the space of the vehicle sensors, because the structure was all at the driver's elevated torso location. So the challenge of engineering design is it may not be 
feasible in the short term to identify every possible outcome and accommodate every one of those, whereas human drivers are able to accommodate things we don't even realize that we do at the moment. So the engineering challenge is, is many-fold. It's what sensors do you use? How fast do you need to record them? How do you store that data? How do you accommodate and estimate situations that you don't even know you need to know yet? I, I love that point. We naturally would think faster decisions are better decisions. But it turns out that if you're able to make your decisions too quickly, that can lead to, I guess I'll call it a computational indecision where there, there might be kind of an uncertain element and you'll be fine if it's either A or B. But if you can keep changing between A and B and A and B a thousand times a second, that could lead to a really unstable vehicle and create a situation where the final decision actually is the wrong one. You need to turn left or right. You can't go straight. And if you're kind of going left, right, left, right, left, right, a thousand times a second, you reach a point where you can't go either. That's really counterintuitive safety scenario that I think demonstrates just in really, uh, I think, tangible terms, the complexity of the challenges here. Are we seeing today roadside sensors or information being broadcast to cars, things like speed limits being transmitted to vehicles? There is a lot of research undergoing right now at Vehicle Connectivity Solutions for exactly what you're describing. Uh, RSUs or roadside units are being primarily tried in test beds right now, but they do communicate things like upcoming signal changes in traffic lights, variable speed limits where they're being used, and even some road data and position data of the vehicle itself. So let's uh, turn to the law and policy side of things. You had mentioned uh, to me in an earlier discussion what one of the big challenges here is just figuring out who's responsible for making decisions and potential liability. If I'm driving and I steer my car off the side of the road, well, we know that I did that. But if uh, my car gets sensor data that is invalid from someone, some other vehicle, and as a result, my car makes a decision and I don't override that, who, the, the liability, whose uh, fault question gets to be really complicated really uh, fast. How do these issues play into the research that you're doing? They're actually part of the central aspect because most of the research that I'm working with is with the state departments of transportation. The ownership issue becomes particularly important with the, the burden or duty of maintenance, the cost and longstanding uh, contributions that they have to do, as well as what are vehicles expecting from the states. Right now, there is a standard of duty of maintaining the road to be reasonable, and that qualification has to be applied a little bit subjectively and leniently, but the roads have to be traversable. They are maintained to be clear. The, there have to be proper signage. And all of these things are factors which play into both federal reimbursement for different transportation projects, safety ratings, and, and other features that are similar to that. But there is an uncertain burden right now for what is mandated for vehicles that are automated or connected, and how are these technologies going to be supported into the future? What is the ownership model for them? Is it third-party ownership? Are the DOTs going to be owning them? And if so, how are they going to accommodate a whole new cost structure? As well, if the DOTs are responsible for the connectivity equipment, and if any of that connectivity equipment fails, are they then therefore responsible for any crashes that would trans transpire in that interim period. 
And that isn't really very clear at the moment. You received some support from the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center to uh, look into and do a, a literature review on the relevant uh, laws and policies uh, in this area. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that work and what you've learned? Certainly. We've looked both at the technologies that are being implemented and tested, as well to provide a background on what vehicle features might have the most interest to the State Departments of Transportation, as they are the principal stakeholders of the assets themselves, the roadways, and whatever the vehicles are using to get around. And therefore, we looked at the background for the features um, that we engaged with the State Departments of Transportation to see what types of features they felt were the priority for their potential investments and how those priorities might affect their funding structures and their duties of ownership then thereafter. Many State Departments of Transportation want to participate in this, but they don't want to accumulate additional financial responsibility or burden of ownership and management without any play-in or buy-in from private companies and consumers as well. So if we can work together into a collaborative environment, then this will facilitate a better growth of this system. But right now, there isn't that collaboration between all three entities and users of these road systems. Any sense on what we can or need to do in order to facilitate that sort of collaboration? One of the outstanding needs identified by many of the states is commonality for the law. Individual states will have their own guidance for responsibilities, including the responsibilities and ownership of the DOTs, individual drivers, and manufacturers for data exchange, for discussion, etc. But there are other states that have little to no guidance whatsoever. And when you have one vehicle that's traveling across state lines, a discontinuity in the laws affecting the vehicle ownership and responsibility could have very significant consequences. It's amplified even further when you're looking at commercial motor vehicles and what's their responsibilities and duties. And so the primary role that many states have identified is a consistent set of laws that transcend state boundaries, that provide a meaningful guidance framework so that little minor adjustments might occur between states, but the overall understanding of the, the duties and responsibilities of the asset owners a second major contribution to what the State Departments of Transportation need is the ability for information to make it out. Right now, there's a lot of development in new features, new technology, growth, adaptation, optimization, but it doesn't reach the kind of audience that it needs to in order to be implemented. And if states are implementing something that is a generation or two behind, because that's the information that they had available, only to find out that there is significant advancements that have been made in the last year or two, this creates a, a synthesis problem. How do we make sure that our equipment is meeting the same standard of, of execution? So I, I want to uh, ask, since, as I noted uh, previously, you're an engineer who has reached out regularly and has shown real interest in understanding the, the law and policy aspects of your work. Um, do, do you have any reflections or thoughts on the, the relationship between the disciplines and ways that the disciplines could or should work better to facilitate these outcomes or just lessons for folks either on the law or engineering side on how to construct these relationships? 
And it's an excellent question. And if I can speak very idyllically here, the law is a great opportunity and lawsuits are a great opportunity to make important changes, to move people outside of the boundaries of, of fear and into a, an opportunity to make meaningful advancements in safety and, and benefits for all. And it is a significant fear that liability can create a negative influence. It can actually adversely affect due to the risk of safety implementation. If a new feature is going to be implemented and, and there isn't sufficient protection to say, I just wanted to investigate how this feature was being implemented or how useful and meaningful it is. If you use a case study like that, it's in there for a year, two years, and you see that crashes increase, this is a significant fear. And it's a burden for implementation of new technologies, and it decreases the innovation aspect of a lot of new technologies too. That's a, a really insightful answer and something that in, in my own teaching, I try and really get my students to understand we we're scared to death of liability and we do everything we can to avoid liability, which means we're living in uncertainty, especially with new technologies and uncertain legal standards. The law develops through litigation and people bringing suits. And in fact, the, the longer it takes for us to get that certainty, the greater the liability becomes. So the more fear there is about trying new things. Um, so at, at some point, uh, we, we just need to start saying, okay, these are the rules and we need to start figuring them out. And, and also there's a, another point that you made in there that uh, I, I think anyone who's driven across straight, uh, state lines can appreciate. Um, States have different laws and we, we have federal regulations and we have state level regulations. And as you know, you drive across a state line and suddenly you go from perfectly smooth paved roads to potholes everywhere or, or the flip side uh, of that. And it, it's binary. Uh, you cross that state, that invisible state line. And unless your GPS is automatically updated really quickly and all the rules that the vehicle is programmed to uh, follow have changed, you're going to be operating under the wrong rules. And if you're just a, a normal human driver, that's probably not a big thing. But if some important control function needs to get changed between states and that doesn't happen, that could have catastrophic uh, uh, consequences. So that that's a, a really interesting interplay between the engineering rules and the legal rules and how they change. How are we seeing things and how do you anticipate things to develop differently between commercial and consumer vehicles? Commercial vehicles are likely going to be leading the way. Um, right now, because every automotive company that sells a semi-automated vehicle implements into the manuals a personal ownership and responsibility, the driver must be ready to resume control of the vehicle at any time without any notice um, that is beyond the realm of what is due diligence. Commercial motor vehicles will follow in close order with a single human driver that may be piloting multiple vehicles behind them in a, in a shadow fleet. This scenario creates a whole different type of a vehicle autonomy, autonomy uh, in which that vehicle is able to make the decisions it needs to simply because a human is in the front guiding all of the trailing vehicles behind it. And as long as that synthesis and that symbiosis continues with those vehicles able to follow in close successive order, you will see commercial motor vehicles advancing the state of automation and connectivity both simultaneously. What's more, we can use artificial intelligence to help learn what did real drivers do 
based on the actions of the shadow vehicles, always observing, and by that use better models and have better means of training our systems to eventually implement into passenger vehicles too. Right now, the information barrier is pretty substantial for passenger vehicles, when and where they're going to be used, how they're driven, and how do they can react uh, to the unknowns. So silly question, but I have to ask, I think I know the answer. Do you have a favorite episode of The Simpsons? I do not have a favorite. No. <laughs> okay. I was, I was hoping that you were going to say, yes, of course, the one where uh, Homer becomes a, uh, a truck driver driving a self-driving truck. But alas, The Simpsons, not what it used to be. Are you uh, an optimist about the future of self-driving vehicles? I am. I think that there are a lot of possibilities, and I think that the biggest and most important contribution we can make in this field moving forward is going to be learning more about driver scenarios and exploring the scenarios we haven't considered to be the traditional avenues, like unpaved roads, rural roads, and areas where there are low service. If we can figure out those problems, I think we're going to make a substantial leap into the future. Any last thoughts as we wrap up? Everybody drive safe. This is otherwise you're going to keep me in job security for the rest of my life. I'd love to put myself out of a job. I can uh, sympathize with that. And uh, thank you really for the, the work that you're doing. It, it's both, it has the advantage of both being intellectually engaging and also really incredibly important. We've been speaking with Cody Stoley from the Department of Mechanical and Materials Engineering here at the University of Nebraska. Cody, really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, thank you for joining us. And thank you, as always, to our listeners for joining us on this episode of Tech Refactored. If you want to learn more about what we're doing here at the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center, or you'd like to submit an idea for a future episode, you can go to our website at ngtc.unl.edu, or you can follow us on Twitter at UNL underscore NGTC. If you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please don't do that while you're driving. Our show is produced by Elspeth Magilton and Lysander Marquez, and Colin McCarthy created and recorded our theme music. This podcast is part of the Menard Governance and Technology Programming Series. Until next time, drive safely.